Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .net. I'm Sean Claver, your host, and with me today are your co-host Caleb Wells. Hey y'all. Hey Caleb. And why Yeah, I'm doing good. Hey, why? Oh. How are yeah. you? Howdy, how you doing? <laughs> good. I like it. Howdy, there you go. Howdy, right. howdy's good. All right. Wow. Good, good, good morning. <laughs> yeah. Right? Where you are. Good night. <laughs> you know, I, I I thought today might be a good day to have a balanced number of accents on the show. So I think we should, <laughs> if we bring in our guest, uh, Stu Egerton. Welcome to the show, Stu. Hi there. Nice to meet you all. All right. I'm, so that uh, makes... <laughs> that makes that four, makes, hey? That makes four of us, two Aussies and two Americans. So <laughs> I'm actually British. I like, well, I like, um, I like Aussie. It sounds better. But people tell me they love my Southern accent. So I don't know. I think everyone likes exotic accents, right? No matter where you're from. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so how long you been in Australia, Stu? Um, I came over here for two years in 2001, and I'm still here. So it's uh, it's been a been a, a great time here. I moved over here for the beach and the warm weather, and I live in Canberra, which ironically doesn't have a beach and gets cold <laughs> in winter. <laughs> but uh, it's still a great it's place. Easy place to get stuck in back Canberra, isn't it? No. It certainly is. Yeah, I came to Canberra for three months. Uh, in 2001 and i'm still here all these years later i just i just enjoy being in the it's it's very much a nature city there's a lot of greenery and i enjoy that and i just love the people here so it's it's great it's actually the capital city of australia which is is not necessarily widely known a lot of people might think it's sydney or melbourne uh, much as people outside the U.S. might think that maybe New York's like the capital or something, right? It's <laughs> we, you know sometimes growing up we can be a bit naive to that. So yeah, it's a great place to be. Thanks. Yeah. So no wonder why it never has a tan. There's no beach. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. That's actually funny because my wife just brought up uh, fairy penguins this morning uh, in Australia and how overnight they come up on the beach. And my son was oh, like, yeah. I really want to see him. And Carly's like, we don't know anybody in Australia. I was like, yeah, we do. <laughs> but again, you guys are in, in the middle. So, you know, next time you guys take a trip to the beach, hang around, take some pictures of fairy penguins and send them to me. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to Adelaide soon, actually. And they are, uh, the, the fairy penguins are in Adelaide. So, yeah, if I get a chance, cool. I'll take a photo. <laughs> Very cool. He would love that. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. All right, Stu, why don't you tell us about your uh, background and what you do and how you got into development, things like that. Yeah, cool. Uh, so uh, thank you. So when I, uh, I guess 
a little bit about me. When I finished uni I uh, in the UK, I, I actually got a role in, in Germany straight up working for digital, which, which is uh, now turned into compact, turned into HP. So it's moved around a lot. So I was doing like Delphi development back then, you know, all that way back for Saab in Sweden from Munich in Germany. It was it was a crazy ride at the start there doing development. And I happened to work with some really cool, really cool developers back then who who taught me more about the mechanics of developing in the team, which was which was a really good opportunity for me. I guess after that, I started moving around and started in in London, working for the BBC and doing Delphi development over there. You know, with the, some of the some of the TV scheduling software, which was very cool, and various other roles. I'm, I guess I did a bunch of other things there in terms of like fire service software and stuff like that, which was very cool because it was very tangible because it was like about radio networks and things like that, which I found really interesting. It was kind of, I guess, the precursor to what we might think of as IoT now. Then I moved to Australia and then got into, started to do .NET 1, uh, C Sharp, you know, 1, back in Sydney for a while there, and then got back into Delphi and then got back into .NET again. I did some ASP.NET. I did some SharePoint work. and. Yeah, really just using the best tool for the job, I guess, to to get good business outcomes for for various parts of Australian government, typically, um, some private enterprise too. And now, more recently, I'm a cloud solution architect at Microsoft. So I take what I've done back there with that development uh, sort of background I have, and I work with dev teams to help them succeed building th- cool things in, in Azure platform. And that's, that's really rewarding for me. I really enjoy that. You've, uh, you've definitely been around the block. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mentioned you have uh, a lot of interesting uh, war stories, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was always the one who, I worked with some great lead developers, as I said, early in my career. And I think that really, really inspired me to stand up and politely I guess politely challenged thinking where I thought that we were building software and we might be maybe there was one project I was working on. It was a part of four different projects and people were writing the same code multiple times. Like there was a date picker in each one. And I found that really crazy. So I politely stood up and said, Hey, could we use the same date picker? You know, and you know, the dry principle that don't repeat yourself. That was, that was really, you know, cross project that, and, and I was, it was a really welcoming environment where I could do that at that particular place I worked. And I found that really good that even though I wasn't the most senior person in the team and I wasn't the most experienced with ASP.net, I had plenty of dev background, I could raise this politely and we could come up with a solution together. And I think that's really important as we, as we start working in larger teams to kind of just to kind of politely say, hey, have you thought about this? And, and and to listen to those junior people as well and say, hey, maybe there's a good idea there that maybe we'd miss something. So I think, yeah, that was that was really good for me. I enjoyed that contributing. Yeah, I um I think I think that's also really important, especially for for larger teams. Um, I found it to be a little more difficult with COVID and and working remotely hundred percent, right? Especially if you don't know your your teammates as you know as well as you otherwise you know would and so you kind of have that that uh, slack barrier but it's definitely important to to um, politely voice your 
your opinion and input. I, th- I actually think that's the best thing about when you have new members in the team, whether they're senior or junior, um, is to get that fresh perspective and just let them suggest things that you could do things differently. Because a lot of times when you've been working in a, in a project for a long time, you kind of get a bit, uh, I guess, you forget what, what the, yeah, you think your solution is the only solution that works kind of thing. So, whereas, you know, there's more, there's always more than one solution to a problem. Yeah, I think I think I definitely definitely agree with that. I think probably what I realized early on was it's it's a there's a level of diplomacy there and I think as sorry it was Sean or Caleb I sorry I missed I didn't I think it was Sean who said then that it's harder working remotely or was it Caleb? But it's it, when you're on Slack or something raising that politely is is harder than when you stood at the water cooler or buying a coffee together, I think. And that is definitely a challenge to to overcome in today's world. I find that I find that when we do uh, when we do something like Scrum or agile development, there are spaces where you can have those contributions when you're doing agile planning and so forth, you might be talking about how difficult things are and scheduling things. You can start to talk about, hey, if we went down this path, we could reuse that for this piece of business value. And I find that really, really important to have those conversations one way or another. As a cloud solution architect, what are some of the main challenges that somebody might have? You know, there's still a lot of people out there that are purely on-prem and they're thinking about going to cloud and they want to do that. And they think, Everybody's going cloud, so I've got to do it too. What are kind of the main differences in mindset or challenges they, they're going to run into in making that switch? Yeah, great question. Thanks, Sean. Um, so I guess, you know, putting, I, I mean, I, I guess let's think about that. Probably what I would say the biggest thing when I'm working with teams, the biggest challenge I have is the thinking where on-premises they might have, you know, they might have a dev server, a test server, and a prod one. It's it's really understanding that in the cloud, we can we wouldn't just keep that server around. We wouldn't keep it like we keep a pet. We treat servers and so forth like cattle. So on-prem, we might have an internet information server, an IS server to host our, our web app for test. But in the cloud, what we might do is stand up a new one with the new version of software and just delete the old one. And that's a complete, very different mindset to on-premises. It's very self-service. But typically what I found early in my career when we were working with a lot of on-prem infrastructure is there was a lead time to buy more hardware or there was there was operations team who I had to ask to, to delete and recreate servers and put the SOE on there and things like that. With the cloud, that that problem doesn't exist in the same way. You don't waste your energy, you know, upgrading that server. You just build a new one. It's already patched. You add your software on and then you test it. And you can do the same when you're released to production. You can have two different copies of your software and cut over between the two. I think that's the biggest mindset shift I see with dev teams I work with, definitely. So when moving from like an on-premise solution to, to cloud, do you often suggest that they just replicate what they've got on-premise and then try to find ways to optimize it? Like let's say if they've got a they've got a server on-premise, they would replicate that by putting a VM um, and then later on maybe they can make it, turn it into an app service so then they don't have to maintain it and then maybe an app function later on, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a great question. So what I would typically suggest to, you know, say we had a classic .NET app 
running on premises. There's actually a whole bunch of tools that allow you to assess whether whether that workload will run well in Azure App Service. And App Service is like managed IIS, managed Inf- internet information service. So, so you you don't need to stand up the servers there. So you could start by putting your dev environment and we we all build developer machines when a new developer arrives typically back in the day that was like 200 pages of documentation oh, yeah um, <laughs> and nobody's was the same um so you know there's there's always some documentation about how to build a new developer machine take that .NET application, just grab the binaries and try and push them to Azure App Service so that you can just get an idea. Now, you can do that with the free tier of Azure App Service because it's sort of number of CPU minutes. So it doesn't cost you a lot to play around with that and figure it out. There is a consideration of whether you whether you block it from the public internet. But if you take a Hello World app running on-premises, and you deploy it to Azure App Service, you can kind of get a really good feel as to how to deploy to Azure App Service working. And on the, I would say you get that up and running pretty pretty quickly um, from the documentation. Some teams I've sat with them while we've done that Hello World and we've we've done it. Others can just go to Microsoft Learn docs.com slash learn. And that that sort of gives you a whole load of free training where you can just go in and you can play around with this stuff. Even gives you a subscription sometimes where you need it to play around. So that stuff really allows you to get more confidence. Confidence is probably the biggest barrier to moving from on-premises to cloud. Confidence to be able to do the stuff and confidence to be able to make it secure on the other side and explain that back to other parts of your organization. That's what I typically find. I find having a like the security posture of an organization is really interesting as well when they're moving to the cloud because there's often different security principles that you have to adopt in the, for, for, on a cloud environment. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so I, I work with a lot of government customers and, you know, uh, some retail and, you know, if you think about a government customer or financial services, typically what they have done with their public sector, I guess, is, is I think, the more American term, the more corporate term that we use at Microsoft. So if we think about them, typically what we used to do was build our software inside the network. And what we do is a bit like when you build built a castle a long time ago, you would put, you'd put a water around the outside and you build a moat. And you put all your energy on that moat and the defenses around the perimeter of your castle. And what we what we typically find is that mentality is, is very prevalent with on-premises customers. So they looked at that network perimeter. So I over my career, I've worked at lots of places where everything that goes to the internet, they think really carefully about you know, the security of that. And they might have put, uh, you know, HTTPS on there and then TLS 1.0, 1.1, 1.2 and so forth. So to secure the connection and make sure you go into the authentic website. So that, that was traditionally the way. But often what you found behind that website that was facing the public internet on premises, it was just standard HTTP requests going across the network. So there was no security inside the boundary of the castle, if you like. Mm-hmm. And the security was all facing outside. Now, what we find with cloud now, we secure everything. We work on more of a zero trust 
method where we use identity as the perimeter and we add in networking. So that's quite a big mindset shift for someone who might have been working on-premises. And so, yeah, that's a huge difference, I think, to get over as well. Right. The uh, the company I'm working for, our client deals with some some government and healthcare stuff, right? So it's HIPAA and all these other things. And Azure, right, allows you to really segment things down to to almost a, a granular level. I mean, we have multiple security groups and we have different roles based on who you are and what you can access. Do you find that a lot of the, the companies you're working with end up going that route and, and you work through that with them to, to get them to a place where they're comfortable with their security? Yeah, good question. So yeah, definitely. You know, because we had this, we had this big castle, this fortress, and we built a moat around it. Security was a secondary thought for a lot of people in in my experience. Healthcare, they would traditionally say, healthcare would traditionally say, if it's running on our network, it's safe, right? That's 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 the mentality that I have seen from a number of people I've spoken to in in that industry. But that's that's not necessarily the case. So yeah, I spend a lot of time teaching people how to work on the principle of least privilege, so that they can think about, hey, I'm building, I'm building an API that updates the customer record. Who should be able to call that API? What so you would set up just so identities that need to call that API can do that. Um, can do that. So reduce the security you know, improve the security there, I guess, is what I'm saying. So you might also additionally, once you've got the identity there, you might also think about which parts of the network would make sense to call that API. And then you will you will add the two of those things. And with, like, say, at Microsoft, we use Azure Active Directory for a lot of different things. So when you use Azure Active Directory, you can get a whole load of other things that sort of say, you can use it from this computer. You know, it, the computer must be patched to this level. Um, they must use these credentials. They must use this. We must use HTTPS to connect to it. You can set up all these different things that weren't even an option on premises. So you can get like a score based on the computer they're coming from, maybe the location. So if you're in the US, you're unlikely to be coming from an IP address in. I don't know, in, in France or Germany, right? So if if you were to come from there and call that same API, that can be flagged as a risky login. And you can do things like multi-factor authentication for those for those situations there. And that wasn't something that you could easily achieve on premises without installing some kind of fancy solution to do that. And I think that's a huge difference. So I try and teach people, think about the least privilege you need for interacting with these components and then it gives the autonomy to those software developers to go off and build that now i'm i'm a fan of microservices but um i think you can overdo it i read a few things recently that say microservices you can go too far so i think it was martin fowler who said you know you you can overdo it and make your system more complex with that but you can absolutely break things up to a point where you can hand that over and you can you can get that developer team read and write records you could give to one developer team and they can use uh, they can write that autonomously and you can deploy that autonomously as well and that's quite different from some of the monoliths we've been working with 
on-premises where it was one big application, where it was three monthly releases and so forth. So one of the biggest challenges that I thought when when thinking about the cloud is, you know, developers, I think they're all for it. Let's let's go cloud, move it, get it. It's really exciting. But then you go to your manager and they're they're typically not going, yeah, let's do it. Their first question is, uh, how much is that going to cost? And so is there good ways to really compare the cost of what it is on-premise versus what it's in the cloud? Because, you know, on-premise, on you could say, well, this is how much we pay for the servers, and this is how much we pay for the software licenses. And overhead, well, that's just overhead, so we, we don't really care about that. So, yeah, that's that's a good question. Now, in terms of the in terms of the financials of cloud, we used to, you know, uh, my kids wouldn't really have seen a DVD like my youngest kid, really, right? They wouldn't have bought movies in that manner. You might spend ten, twenty dollars on a DVD right back in the day now what we do is we subscribe to netflix right so if i bought four dvds in a year that might cost me 80 bucks right or 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 10 might cost me 200 i can get a netflix subscription now and i subscribe to it so i'm paying every month for something instead of like at Christmas time, buying 200 bucks of, of DVDs, say. And I think that's quite different to uh, to subscribe to things in cloud and pay based on the usage. You know, you can go on different tiers on maybe Netflix and you can go up and you say, oh, we want to use it across five devices, therefore it's the top plan or one device, it's the bottom plan. So it's very much that that kind of the cost model of cloud is quite different. I guess when I work with teams that uh, are moving to the cloud, uh, what I do is help them understand the cost tools. So all the major cloud providers typically work the same way. You use stuff, and then at the end of the month, you get a bill for that stuff you used. Now, bill shock, what you don't want to do is spin up the most expensive thing in that cloud, and that could be thousands of dollars you know, for this VM, a virtual machine, and you don't you don't want to be in a situation where you do that because that for us at Microsoft that would erode the trust of the customer 